We have been in a series of sermons on the need for our lives to be impacted by and made by the Word of God. Uh, the Word of God is not given to be a suggested way of living, uh, but it is to be the authority on the Christian way of living. If you want your life to look like Christ, you've got to be in the Word. And so we've been encouraging you over the last couple of weeks to do something really weird for some Christians, and that's take a Bible and open it without pastoral oversight and read it. It's a scary proposition, because at times... You open your Bible with no plan, and you flop it open to the middle of the book, or you end up in Leviticus, and you begin to read things about donkeys and a fat guy that had a knife get stuck in him and it disappeared. And you're like, what does this have to do with my life currently, and how does this shape my view of God currently? And it can be a struggle at times to get a consistent habit of being in the Word of God, but anything you do in life is going to render, when it becomes rooted in you, a fruit through you. If you eat good food, some of you have heard you are what you eat. If you eat healthy on a consistent basis, the root of that will produce a fruit of hopefully greater physical health in your life. Same with working out or working hard at a career or a startup. As you invest and your roots go deep and you put time and passion and energy into something to where it becomes a habit, it begins to produce a good fruit or a type of fruit in your life that may or may not be Good. For some of us, our dietary habits have produced not such good fruits in our life, and we show it with a thicker waistline and maybe some pants that uh, continue to have to be expanded. Instead of working on your diet, some of you just bought the expansion plan pants. You know what I'm talking about? They come with an expand, uh, elastic band, and it just fits over whatever it's becoming. Uh, I'm meddling now, and I'm in too many of your business. My point is... Uh, we want you consistently in the Word, rooted in the Word, so that you can bear the fruit of the Word in your life. And that's our hope and ambition. We've asked you and challenged you to trust the Word based on His promises, to know the Word based on the entirety of the book. And today I want to talk to you about uh, weaponizing the Word of God. That seems aggressive, but you'll understand it as we go on. I want to talk to you about weaponizing God's Word. So if you're a note taker, I hope you are. Uh, I'd love for you to just write down the title. We are weaponizing God's word. Where we're going in the Bible is to the 119th Psalm. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 119. As you're going there, as always, I want to give you a lot of Bible facts because I spent all week enjoying these, and I got no one to share them with until Sunday because, believe it or not, my nine-year-old son just isn't that into my Bible facts yet. We're working on it. He's really into, like, stats on Atlanta Braves baseball players, but he's not really into stats on Psalm 119. So some background on this psalm. Psalm 119, it is the longest chapter in the Bible. Don't worry, we're not going to preach all of it. We're only going to look at seven verses of it today, verses 9 to 16. It has 176 verses in total within its chapter. It's similar in length to the entire book of Philippians, but it's one chapter within this big book called the book of Psalms. The purpose of this psalm is to celebrate God's word and his instruction to his people. So if you look at a theme over 176 verses, what we have is the psalmist writing about the impact, the power, the beauty, the joy of knowing and living by and having the word of God. It's read throughout the Jewish calendar during the season of Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. It's also a, in a series of festivals known as the Days of Awe. It's 
fitting that this would be the psalm that they would start their year out with because for many of us, we understand in a new year, intuitively, we want to start fresh and we want to start fresh with the Word of God. But for a lot of us, we struggle to have a habit that loves the Word of God. And for some of you, this may be the struggle in this series. We've been talking about your need for God's Word and you've sat there with your arms crossed, your eyes glazed over with little to no affection or attention to the Word of God over the last several weeks. And I just want to continue to admonish you that... I am, as a pastor, here to encourage your faith and to spark your faith and to catalyst your faith, but I am not to be the foundation of your faith. And if all you get from the Word of God is the preached Word of God from a preacher on a weekend, there's no preacher that is going to be able to pontificate enough of the Word of God to you to sustain you throughout the rest of your week. So we want you to gain a diet of God's Word. And the the Jewish calendar sets up to where they look at this every year. In the 119th Psalm, verse 72 says, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And this is what we hope you find to be true of the Word of God in your life as it moves from something that you force yourself to do to becoming something that you look forward and even have to find other uh, margin to get away from reading the Word. I mean, that's really my hope is that you start by having to force yourself to read the Word of God, and then you have to force yourself to put down the Word of God because it becomes such a joy and a treasure in your heart. And Some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy, but I've been here. I love it. I've gotten to read the Bible through in 30 days one time. I just wanted the Word of God. You know what I didn't have during that, that month? Worry. I didn't have anxiety. I had no clue what was going on in the, in the, in the uh, uh, heavily edited versions of news that was happening. I was a college student that just said, you know what, I'm just going to read the Bible in all of my free time. I didn't get better at Halo that month. My muscles didn't get bigger. But spiritually, it was one of the most life-changing moments to go cover to cover in 30 days. Uh, I followed that up by reading the New Testament through in the next 30 days. And then I did the Bible in 90 days because 30 days is a lot. What happened was I began to love the Word of God. I wanted the Word of God more and more. I couldn't get enough of the Word of God in my life. Uh, Now it's led to years where I've spent large portions of that year studying small portions of Scripture. I spent six months studying the 23rd Psalm because I just couldn't get enough. And some of you are like, why can you read six verses for six months and not get tired of it? I'm just going to be honest with you. The Holy Spirit, when you're a follower of Jesus, works with you as you're working in the Word to show you, to teach you, to rejuvenate you, to refresh you. And when you fall in love with the Word of God, it will change your life. It will change the way you view the world. It will change the way that you contemplate and deal with life's struggles and tribulations. I'm I'm just trying to give you a little bit of encouragement here that this is not meant to be heard about. It is meant to be experienced. Don't take a second-hand experience from your pastor to be enough for you. Let it be a first-hand experience for you. Open up the Bible and read it on a consistent basis, and who knows what God will do through it when you do so. So we're looking at the 119th Psalm in verse 9, you're going to see a header that comes at the top of these psalms. So the first one is Aleph, then you'll see Beth, Gamel. What is that about? Just to give you a little bit more background, the structure of the 119th psalm is set up into 22 stanzas, each starting with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's literally going through the Hebrew alphabet and talking about the power of, the sufficiency of, the joy of, the love of, the word of God. And so it's going through and teaching you the language of the day, by teaching you the spiritual need of the day. Uh, Many believe in the Orthodox tradition that this is what King David used to teach Solomon Hebrew. 
literally going through and teaching him the sufficiency and the power of the word of God as he taught him the Hebrew language. And so we see Beth, the second letter, the, the first letter Beth, B being in the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and it jumps us into this story today. Look at it with me, verse 9. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. I have tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commandments. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. I have recited aloud all the regulations you have given us. I have rejoiced in your laws as much as in riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. I will delight in your decrees and not forget your word. These are the verses that we are going to look at. Uh, things change, culture changes, but the word of God, it lasts forever. Amen? Amen. In verse 1, we start this text out with a question, a question that for many of us, we don't even think is possible. It gives us a young person. The suggestion of it is someone who is not at the age of marriage yet. They're working towards the age of marriage. And the question is, how can they, before they are married, before they are older, before they have grown, before they've matured, before they've experienced, how can they keep their way pure in God's eyes? Not to man's standard, but to God's standard. Uh, this question is one that for a lot of us we don't want to spend much time on because with some reflection we begin to quickly be aware of the fact that for a lot of us purity has not marked any of our youthfulness. Uh, for some of us it's become such a battle, a struggle, a frustration, uh, a hate for the person in the mirror because we cannot stay pure uh, that we at the hearing of the question just get discouraged and want to shut down. It's nonetheless a question I think every one of us in this room should consider. How do you live a life that is pure before God? How do you live a life that makes uh, a difference, that walks in line with, that reflects the goodness of God in it? The application is given in the first verse, but it doesn't make it any simpler. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping your word, by obeying your word. It's not enough to hear the word, but it must be adhered to. You've got to heed the word of God. You don't get credit for what you know, you believe what you apply. And so don't tell me what you know, let me see what you've applied. Because it's in the application of the word of God that we get the fruit of the work of God in your life. And so the question is, how can you keep your way pure? The answer is by obedience to God's word. The question and answer are both good and true. It gives a direct answer with what seems to be a clear application. Go be obedient to God's word. But... For any one of us that have faced the temptation in our life, we can understand the difficulty in applying it to the battles with our sin. How many of you know you ought to apply the word of God to your battles and to your temptations and to your mirror and to your identity and to everything else? How many of you know that you ought to adhere to the word of God in your life, that it should be applied in every season and in every moment, and that whenever you're facing temptation and you're tempted to think differently or look differently or make a moment the entirety of the, of the entire character of God and the entire story of God, that you need the word of God to remind you of it? We know this, right? However, I stinketh, KJV, at <laughs> taking the application of verse 1 and making it my application in my life. I would submit that the majority of us are not struggling with knowing what to do, i.e. turning to God's word, walking in truth. We are struggling with a weakness that keeps us from being able 
to do the call of action in verse 1 or in verse 9 of Psalm 119. The good news for us is there's a guy named Paul. And Paul was better at being religious than any of you have ever thought about being religious. There ain't no southern woman that got nothing on Paul when it comes to looking the religious part. I don't care how much she's blessing your heart, how many shirts have scripture verses written on it. The Apostle Paul was more committed to the word of God than any woman I've ever met in the south, which is a whole lot of commitment on the surface. Because I know many a woman of God that looks the part of being a person of God that then gossips like the straight up demon that has been whispering in their ear and they've been adhering to instead of Jesus. I met many person that claims to be a man of God that then turns around as soon as you walk out of their presence and does everything but honor the God that they serve and the people that are made in the image of God that they are just in the presence of. So they slander and speak against a person just as, as soon as they walk away when they were blessing them with the same mouth that, that was standing in their presence just a moment before. The Apostle Paul was an incredible believer, but yet he found this struggle of this application to be very true in his own life. In Romans chapter 7, verse 14, he says, So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is not that the word of God isn't good. The trouble is not that the word of God isn't true. The trouble, as he goes on to say, is me. I believe it was J.I. Packer, he was a preacher back uh, earlier in the 1900s, and he was asked, what is wrong with the world by a local newspaper? He began his answer with, the problem is me, period. I'm what's wrong with this world. Paul says, the trouble's not the law, the trouble's me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for what I want to do, for, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. I want to do what's right. I know what I'm doing is wrong. I just don't know how to stop doing the wrong that I'm doing to do what is right. Anybody relate? Anybody can empathize whether you're a follower of God or not? Have you ever had intentions that did not follow through on actions? I've got lots of intentions to be a better parent. Didn't follow through on actions. I've got lots of intentions on eating better. Didn't follow through with the actual habit. I've got lots of intentions on being a more attentive and engaged spouse. But it doesn't follow through whenever Instagram stories are being scrolled through in the middle of the night and no conversations being had. I'm just saying, intentions... Don't, don't lead to transformation in your life. Intentions do not lead to a new life. I I instead, what we see is more of what Paul's talking about. I don't really understand myself. I want to do what's right. I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree with the law and that it is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. Wait a minute. What's he talking about? Is this like the third grader that's like, I've got two personalities, you know? There's, there's Bubba and then there's like, you know, Larry. And you named him Bubba because you're from the South. You never met Larry. But Larry's always painting on walls. Larry is always, you know, like keeping the dog out and like doing things they shouldn't do. Like, like how many of you, you're, you, you've, like, is this what Paul's doing here? Let's continue reading. So I'm not the one doing the wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And so here's, here's the thing. The Bible teaches a, a theological concept about sin, and that is that you and I are born in a state of sinfulness. It's what we inherited from our first father and first mother, Adam. So we may come out of the womb wanting to honor God, but we nonetheless come out of the womb dishonoring God in sin. Uh, this creates a lot of trauma and difficulty for us theologically to understand. 
But what we have is the greater Adam. This is what the New Testament talks about in 1 Corinthians. Jesus coming to do what Adam didn't do. Uh, Instead of living the way that he was intended to live in the presence of God, Adam chose to live in the path of his wife Eve and allow her to walk in the path of temptation. And together they walked down the path to seeing death and destruction enter the world. And it's now through Christ, the greater Adam, that he removes and takes the wrath of death and destruction upon himself so that he can deliver the world from the sin that has come into it, from the temptation that they can't stop giving into outside of his intervention in their life. And so the Apostle Paul lays out that there's this work of sin in us that keeps us from living a consistent life before God of faithfulness and honor and holiness and truthfulness. We we aren't steady. Your name may be Eddie, but it doesn't begin with steady. (laughs) We are erratic, hypocritical, and inconsistent. And that's not Christians, that's humans. All human beings, I'm focused one day, I'm binge eating the next. I'm disciplined one day, I'm up till three watching a Murdoch documentary on Netflix the next. This is, this, is the, this is the plight of the human behavior. And we always are the best versions of ourselves, and we give ourselves credit for who we intend to be in our head. While we don't give anyone else credit for who they intend to be. And so we set up this weird culture where instead of humility and acknowledging our weaknesses and our need for intervention, we then set up a culture where we uh, like to boast about our own sufficiency as if we don't need the hand of God, the work of God, and the power of God in our life. While we look at a bunch of other people that are to be pitied because they need the power of God, the work of God, and the, and the, act, and the active hand of God in their life. And so my, my point in bringing all of this up to you is that for a lot of us, we can relate to this. I'm not the one doing the wrong. It's the sin living in me. I want to do right, but I can't do it. Look what it goes on to say in verse 18. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've now been delivered from the sinful nature, and there's something good living in you. God has put his spirit within you so that you can be helped, so that you can overcome, so that you can be delivered in your time of temptation. But what he's saying, and he makes the note of it, it's in my sinful nature. There's nothing that can honor God within it. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing the wrong. It's the sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Some are like, well, that's not been my problem. I've just done what's wrong, and I've never tried to do what's right. That's not the application, Thunder. Stay with me. Verse 22 goes on to say this. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes you doubt the Word of God, distrust the Word of God, not build your life on the Word of God, compartmentalize God's word into a part of your, not, uh, of your life, but not the foundation of it. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. Here's the application. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. So Psalm 119 starts with, how can a young man keep his way pure? Be obedient to the word. Here's the problem. You can't. So then what what kind of conundrum is the Bible setting us up into? It's setting you up into a position to recognize a real need. And the real need is you need to be delivered from yourself. 
You need to be saved, not from scary people around you, but from you. Your biggest enemy is not your neighbor, it's yourself. You can't get out of your own way. So Jesus comes and offers a different way, a living way through him. Now notice what the call is. How can a young man keep his way pure by obeying your word? Now here's the word, verse 10. I have tried hard to find you. Isn't that mean of God? To hide. It's not the idea of the text. The NLT doesn't translate this as well as I would like. The ESV says it this way. With my whole heart I seek you. I seek you. What's he saying? My ambition is not to be a better person. My ambition is not self-sufficiency. You see, many of you don't want God as Lord and leader. You want God as assistant and co-pilot. And this is not how God works. He does not desire a portion of your life. Let's test the waters. I'll try God a little. That is not the ambition. That is not the call. You see, the, 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 the rock-bottom truth is when God becomes the joy in the possession of your heart, then you can actually position yourselves to receive from God what you need. Whenever your ambition is just to be a better person, not to feel pain, to get a miracle, to, to get deliverance, to overcome an addiction, whenever that is your aim, it becomes primary and makes what should be primary secondary. And this is what the Bible's talking about here. I have sought you with my whole heart. I want you. I don't want an answer to that prayer. I don't just want a miracle. I don't want just an endurance through a season. I just don't want a hedge of protection. I want you. I want you. That's all I want. Are you there? Have you come to a place of recognizing that at the end of the day, you could have all of the possessions in the world and all of the miracles in the world and all of the overcoming moments of every addiction in the world. You could have the biggest house. You could have, every like you could have everything. And if you don't have him, you have nothing. And I've been beating this gong over and over again because I'm hoping that some of you realize, hey, it seems like Jesus may be a bigger deal. Then my approach in life have been looking to him to be. The text says, with my whole heart, I seek you. You're my greatest desire. I cannot know the law of God without knowing the God of the law. And so my pursuit must be the God of the law in order for me to walk in the law of God. Because if I walk with the God of the law, then he can enable me to walk in the law of God. But if I walk after the law of God and not after the God of the law, then I'll be a religious man and a hypocritical man, but I will not be an overcoming man, and I will not be a delivered man, and I will not be an empowered man, because I'll still be trapped in the power of myself, which is unable to keep the law. Anybody still with me? See, this, this is the call. I've tried hard to find you. Don't let me, what? Wander from your commandments. I don't want to wander from you. I don't want to go stray. I don't want to walk away from your word. I want to be in view of my life, in view of my future, in view of my time. I want to be through the lens of your word. On the pursuit, the idea is that you would pursue Jesus. This is what we see in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 and 38, a Pharisee heard that he had uh, silenced the Sadducees with his reply. They met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses. You see, this is what we like to do. We know that you gave us the law. 
but what's really important, like if I'm going to keep, like, like I, I can't keep all of it. I'm just going to give up on that. I'm in my 30s now. I'm, I've been, had the pride beat out of me. God's first plan for me was humility. His second plan was humiliation. I've walked in the path of humiliation through my 20s. I'm humble enough to recognize that I'm not a perfect person, that I have a lot of broken areas in my life that I like to minimize and maximize my strengths to excuse my brokenness. So we like, which, which is most important, God? Jesus said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Just for review, he's talking about the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments that we find in the book of Exodus. The question was, what's most important? Jesus starts with a summary of one through five, which all are about our relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. It all deals with our vertical relationship with God. What is Jesus saying? Well, what's most important would start with one to five. And once we get done with one to five, there's six to ten. What are six to ten about? Well, look at the next part of the text. It goes on to say, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. What does that deal with? Well, commandment six deals with not, commandment six through ten deal with not coveting your neighbor are deceiving your neighbor. So essentially God's saying, Jesus is saying, it's all important. But the way to keeping it is by loving God most. You see, we seek God with our whole heart, and by doing so, we get to the call of verse 11. Verse 11's call is this, I have hidden your word in my heart. Uh, my kids have a weird game going on in our house right now. They run out of the car, race in after school, uh, grab a snack, and then immediately fight over who's going to get the TV control. Uh, we have under-TV'd our house for the intent of creating drama, apparently. <laughs> We're not giving them all a TV. If you want to watch TV, you can sit downstairs with me. That way I can oversee what you're watching. So if the tick don't talk, it ain't going to be on my TV. This ain't going to work. Um, and so we, we've got that happening in our house. So what ends up happening is a full-on uh, chair, ladders, and uh, table match uh, in my living room uh, every afternoon. Uh, my oldest is smarter now. She's a little bit older. She's a little bit more of the old head of the group. And so she, uh, one day on the way to school, decided that she would take the remote and she would hide it. <laughs> it was a treasure. It gave her power. It gave her control over what was going to happen in the room. And so we get out of the car. Nora and Lucas take off into the house last week. They begin the normal shuffle to get the right snack to then get to the remote. And then they're running around yelling, Dad, where's the remote? Where's the remote? And meanwhile, Macy walks in calmly. <laughs> the other kids are throwing their boot back, which they're not supposed to do in the middle of the floor. I almost trip and break my neck over. The puppy that is peeing and pooping all through my house right now has got his pee and excrement on the ground with the boot bag laying in it. Um, they're going to love you tomorrow, kid. You're going to smell great. Um, <laughs> Macy walks in and gently places her book bag down. There's no fear. There's no worry. She goes and grabs her snack. The argument continues. My voice is matching their voice. I don't know where the remote is. It's not my job to keep with the remote. We told you where to put the remote. Macy gets her snack. She goes and sits on the couch. She reaches behind the third cushion. You hide what you value. 
Keep it close if you treasure it. The psalmist says, I've treasured your word. I, I know that it stirs my affection for you. It reminds me of who you are, and so I keep it in my heart. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, the point of the word of God, as we talked last week, is that it would root in your heart. But here's the point. It goes through all the pragmatics. It must be about seeking God, not seeking the law, not seeking to be made right. I want God. That's all I want. I want him so much that when he gives me his word, I treasure it and put it deep within my heart because you put in your heart what you treasure most. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, right? So we're supposed to have this eternal view that's rooted within us. We're supposed to root the word in our heart, and that's to direct us. But then we see the weaponization of the word that comes in verse 12 through the end of the text. And it teaches us how. How do you apply the word? How do, you, how do you utilize this word in the way that God intended it to be used so that when we face temptation and our, our view is filled with grief and sorrow and pain, how, how do you utilize the word? Let me go through this quickly. Number one, verse 12 teaches that we are to praise and shout and sing it. Look at verse 12. It says this with me. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. The idea is that the words of God are to be ever present on your tongue and on your lips. You see, praise by definition means to extol in words or song, to magnify, to glorify on account of the perfection or excellent works, to do honor to, to display the excellence of in your praise. Now, there's some aids to doing this, and this is where we get really practical. For some of you, you're like, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to like open my Bible and like buddy the elephant? It's like, I'm singing, I'm singing, teach me your decrees, O Lord, I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding. I don't think you're going to go wrong. I mean, you may look like a balloon, but you already do. But, but, but good news, we live, so when I was growing up, if I wanted to get the latest album, I would have to go down to a big box store. If it was the review or debut of that album, sometimes there would be a line. You would wait in that line so you could get in so that you could buy, you know, that whatever that CD was. Before that, it was tapes. And with tapes, there was a revolution that happened because you could listen to the radio and push down, play, record, pause at the same time. And whenever Don't Chase and Waterfalls came on, which you had been waiting for for months to be played, you would quickly dive at the tape player, hit unpause, record that. Then you could listen to it, but only once, because then you had to have at least a 30-second break where you were around it every single time just so you could listen to it again. But you live in a day and age where right now you can, like, for some of you on whoever's Apple account you've got that you're bumming off of, <laughs> listen to any song you want to listen to from any genre, from any era, whenever you want to do it. And there are some people that are taking the Word of God and they're putting it to music in a way that is, I think, very helpful for your praise. One of my favorites is this couple, Poor Bishop Hooper. Uh, they, in 2020, decided they were going to write a song to every psalm in the Bible. They finished last year. 
They've got an entire album just on Psalm 119 that puts to music the words of Scripture so that you can join in with it. I love Psalm 1 and the way that they handled that psalm. You should listen to it sometime. It'll encourage you. It'll help you sing and reflect on the Word of God whenever you don't have the Bible open to you. There's another set of worship leaders, Shane Bernard and Shane Everett. They've been doing it for a long time. They've got several volumes of the psalms. One of my favorite ones is Psalm 34, and it goes, Oh, taste and see. That the Lord is good, all blessed is he who hides in him. Those who fear the Lord. Do I know Psalm 34? No, I know that song, which happens to be the lyrics to Psalm 34. It goes on to say, magnify the Lord with me. Oh, man. So good. I get listening to that on a Monday morning, scripture's going through my head, and I'm thinking about what am I here to do? I'm here to magnify the Lord. I want to taste and see, God, today that you are good. So I'm not just thinking, oh, what's my day going to be based on my perception and my feelings? I'm not living in my flesh, but I'm moving to the Word of God so I can live by the Spirit with what God has called me to live in. Uh, one of my favorite follows on Instagram uh, is Drew and Ellie Holcomb. I don't know if you're familiar with who they are. They're singer and songwriters, indie artists. But one of my favorite things about her is she gets on her Instagram at least a few times a week and just says, I'm trying to meditate on the words of God and let his words just get into my heart. So I'm just going to sing some truth. And she starts strumming her little guitar and does exactly what I said, like was like Buddy the Elf, except it sounds good because she's not me. The word is meant to be a praise. It, many of you only know the word to be a, a word that's read, not a word that's sang. But, I mean, the psalms that we're looking at are songs, hymns, cries to God. And so sometimes one of the most effective ways that you can weaponize the word of God whenever you're going through difficult times is to sing the word of God in your car like nobody's looking. The call is praise the word of God. If you want to weaponize it, praise with it. Number two Proclaim the word of God. Verse 13, it says, I have recited aloud all the regulations you have given us. I've, I say the word of God. I speak it out loud. Um, so when I studied the 23rd Psalm, I was going through a very difficult time. I felt like my life, my ministry, my best days were over. And some of you are like, you're still 19 or you still look young. There's not enough gray in your hair to think your life is over. But I, I literally thought, well, peaked in my 20s, you know, only the good die young. When's it going to happen? You know, like that, that's, that was not a Christian psalm, by the way. That was... Uh, the boss. But he, my, my point, my point is uh, I was in a really tough season and I was believing a lot of lies. How do you counteract lies? Well, for me, I was driving around in my car and I just started going, the Lord is my shepherd. Shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I'll walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely. Huh. If you done taken me through all that, surely. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. The best is not in my past. The best is yet to come. Lord, you are my shepherd. Let's go. There is a power in taking the word of God and being it for something that is seen with your eyes, something that's heard through your mouth. And for some of you, the most powerful thing you would do this year would be to memorize God's word. Now, some of you are like, well, that's hard for me. I don't memorize stuff. Okay, okay. Finish the lyric. Don't go chasing 
Leave it to the... Sitting on the, had to bring the rest of them into it, okay? <laughs> Watching the, sweet Caroline. I, I just want to do that one. That was. What are some aids to learning how to proclaim the word of God, to weaponize it as what you speak and remind yourself of in truth? Well, in the face of life's troubles, be ready to give answers with the words of Scripture. Take a text and preach it to yourself. Uh, when I was in college, I preached Job 31.1 to myself on repeat. It says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a woman. And so I was constantly walking around campus. I was a weirdo because I wanted to keep my way pure and I didn't know how to do it. And some women were not helping me on my campus do that. Um, <laughs> it wasn't summer yet, and then we were acting like it's summer, like, what are we doing? And, and so I'm walking around like, Lord, I've made a covenant of my eyes not to look, oh, Lord, I've made a covenant of my eyes not to look. Now, I just preached that to myself on repeat, uh, repeat, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I preached that one to myself for a long time, right? Do not be conformed to this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Lord, I don't want to be like the world, I want to be like you. Lord, I don't want to look like the world, I want to look like you. Do not allow me to conform to their pattern and to their way of living and to where their way of thinking, but God, I want your way and your leadership in my life to, to make me into what you would have me to be and what you call me to be. So I'm preaching to myself. How'd you, get, how'd you get good at preaching if no one would let you preach? I preached to shampoo bottles and trees and to myself before I ever preached to human beings. Some of the worst sermons I ever preached that you were spared to hear were preached to inanimate objects and to a squirrel that I think gave his life to the Lord. I don't know if it's theologically <laughs> accurate, but I think it happened. If you weaponize the word, you praise God with the word, you proclaim, uh, you, you proclaim the word, and you rejoice, verse 14, in the word. You rejoice in it. Verse 14, I have rejoiced in your loss as much as in riches. Look at the second part of that text. As much as in riches. How many of you rejoice in a bought lottery ticket that's never going to come through? You spend your time spending it and thinking about how your life would change. And then you almost panic over, like, will my life change? Like, how drastic will it be? And then you try and tell yourself that you're going to be generous Unlike all those other lottery winners, and like all the, and, and you rejoice in the pursuit of riches and wealth. How many of you you got a raise, and before you ever got the raise, you spent weeks just thinking, "Oh, what are we gonna do? Like, where is it gonna go?" It's like a joy welling up inside of you at the future promise of money that's yet to even be received. Well, notice what the text is saying: "I rejoice in your word as much as others rejoice in wealth, as much as I used to rejoice in wealth." That, that's how much of a treasure your word is. You see, rejoicing is to feel joy, to experience gladness in a high degree. It's to have pleasure and satisfaction to be delighted in it. You see, some will find their joy in their possessions, their treasures are power, but the believer's joy is in the word. How many of you have read the Bible and almost gleefully erupted with joy? Have you ever had that experience? Man, there's such power. Whenever we come to the word of God and, and God meets with us by his spirit and it just hits us in the moment, you're like, oh, yes, that's what I needed. That's what I, ah. Oh. And if you've not experienced that, you have no clue how much I want that for you. This is not a boys only club or a religious elite. Only, like This is what God intends to do through the word in your life. Now, not every day is going to lead to you reading it and going, man, what joy. 
Sometimes it's, man, that's tough. That one's hard. That's what I needed to hear, but it's more surgical than it is like uh, dessert. <laughs> but the point is, there should be moments where the hearing of the word of God brings joy to you. If you were to go to a Jewish synagogue back in the day, they would keep the scroll in the back of the room. The priests would be in the front of the room. They would begin with song. And uh, people would be getting into it, kind of like you do. You know, you're the early crowd. You're less caffeinated. It's had less time to kick in. It takes a song or two sometimes for you all to wake up. Sometimes I believe it just would take a sermon or two for you to wake up. Uh, but the priest, at some point during the music, would begin to walk to the back of the room to get the scroll. And when the priest would go get the scroll, there would be an electricity that would be, begin to take over the synagogue. People would begin to dance because they knew the word of God was about to be heard in the house. As the scroll would come through, people would kiss the scroll, dancing and celebrating because they were going to get to hear God's word. I think we've lost this in our culture. Your access to the scripture has made you cold-hearted to the uniqueness of its power. You have Bibles and you can Google and you have apps and it allows you to read the Word of God anytime you want to read it, which means for a lot of us, we rarely, if ever, read it. But it is to be something that we rejoice in. I've got to hurry up. The first 15 says that we are to study or pursue God in His Word. I will study your commands and reflect on your ways. When you have nothing to do and you're only left with your thoughts, what do you think about? You think about how you're going to fix your life? You think about what you want to do, where you want to eat. I know it changes by momentary moment to moment, right? Like, I want to sleep. The goal that I, I would Im, like lay out for you is that for some of you, it would take up the goal that when I have nothing to think about, I think about the Word. That at night when I sit up and I can't sleep, I'm going to sit there and recite and think on the Word of God until I fall asleep with that Word being what's reflected in my mind and being going, going through my thoughts. I study the Word of God, get wisdom, seeking it out. See, this has been the aim of this entire series, that every day you would set your eyes on the Bible, which then finally leads us to verse 16, which says, I will delight in your decrees. So if you want to weaponize the word, you study it, you rejoice in it, you proclaim it, you praise God with it, and you delight in it. You treasure and you value it. That's what that word means, delight. It means to treasure and value. You see, what you delight in, you keep close. The call here. It's not to mentally wander far from setting your mind on the Word of God. It's to keep it close to mind. In every moment, keep the Word of God close. When you drift away for a minute, you get busy in your day, bring the Word of God back to mind again. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said this, Young man, the, the Bible must be your chart, and you must exercise great watchfulness that your way may be according to its directions. You must take heed to your daily life as well as to Bible study. And you must study your Bible that you may take heed to your daily life. With the greatest care, a man will go astray if his map misleads him. But with the most accurate map, he will still lose his road if he does not take heed to it. Therefore, heed the word of God by the Spirit of God so that you can be the person of God that he's called you to be. Hey, in the preaching of this word, if you have come to the realization that you need Jesus to be a Lord, leader, and Savior in your life. We want to give you an opportunity to do that. Uh, in fact, I just want to invite you right now. Would you bow your heads with me? And if you have been someone who is observing and thinking on 
considering God's word, but you've not trusted in it, you've not asked Jesus to be your Lord, then I want to invite you to pray a prayer of confession, asking Jesus to step in and be your Savior. Now let me be very clear. What you are doing is you are giving up the reins and authority of your life into the hands of Christ. That means he holds authority over your past. Therefore, he can say you are forgiven if his blood is enough. He holds the authority over your present. Therefore, you no longer have to carry your burdens and worries and your heaviness alone, but you get to deliver it over to the hands of a Savior who is sufficient and able to carry it. And you surrender your future, which means now, by his word and by his spirit, he becomes the Lord, leader, and director of your life. If that's what you want to do, if that's something you've never done, would you pray this prayer with me? Jesus, I confess that I need you to save me for myself to deliver me from me and sin. I believe that you died on the cross to make payment for my sin. And I believe that you rose from the grave proving that you can give me victory and eternal life. So I give my life to you and I ask you to be my Lord and my leader. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, before you leave today, if you prayed that prayer, I'd love for you to tell one of our team, hey, I, I made that decision. What do I do? Where do I go? We're not going to give you a list of to-dos, but we would love to celebrate with you and talk about what it means to start a relationship with Jesus from this moment forward. If you need prayer, our prayer team's going to be here. They're here to pray with you in this time. Let's stand and let's respond.